This is episode 57 with scientist, researcher, and Found My Fitness podcast host, Dr. Rhonda Patrick. Welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living, an adventure podcast presented by REI Co-op. We talk to experts who have taken a wild idea and made it a reality so you can too. From people who have climbed the tallest peaks, started thriving businesses, and even broken records, some of the wildest ideas can lead to the most rewarding adventures. I'm your host, Shelby Stanger, and I hope you enjoy this show. We've done a few podcasts on health, fitness, performance, and longevity, and they've all been really popular. These are key components to living wildly, which is why I'm so excited to have on Dr. Rhonda Percival Patrick. You might have heard her on Joe Rogan or Tim Ferriss's podcast or her own podcast, Found My Fitness. Rhonda has done extensive research on aging, cancer, and nutrition, and she's been published in several peer-reviewed science journals. Rhonda got her undergraduate degree in biochemistry from the University of California in San Diego and her PhD in biomedical science from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center and St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. As the host of Found My Fitness, she interviews some of the top scientists in their field when it comes to things like breathwork, sauna, training, fasted, and time-restricted feeding, to name a few. Rhonda and I actually know each other because we taught surfing together at the Surf Diva Surf School when we were in our 20s. I came back across her because I randomly interviewed her while writing a science story for Outside Magazine, and I was so glad to be back in touch. I love how Rhonda takes complex scientific studies and puts them into plain English so all can understand it. So on this episode, we talk about everything from health hacks that you can use to increase performance in your own health, as well as how Rhonda got the wild idea of combining her own love of research and science by doing a podcast and YouTube channel rather than going the traditional 10-year track. We also talk about things like what cell apoptosis is, how she got the attention of guys like Tim Ferriss and Joe Rogan, and so much more. But before we begin, disclaimer. I'm not a doctor, and I don't play one on my podcast. Rhonda isn't either. So before trying anything we talk about, please consult your doctor. This is for informational purposes only. I hope you enjoy the show. This episode was brought to you by REI Co-op, a brand that's big on protecting where we play outside. As stewards of the outdoors, REI gives away 70% of all profits back to the outdoors. Since 1976, REI has invested more than $77 million through partner nonprofits to create, improve, and sustain access for all to inspiring outdoor places. They're also incredibly eco-friendly. REI uses 100% renewable energy to operate, and they built the first largest and most sustainable net zero energy and LED platinum distribution center in the country. On top of that, REI has partnered with over 66 brands in the outdoor industry to enhance the sustainability of their products. Their motto, a life outdoors is a life well lived, is something I definitely stand by. You can learn more, take classes, go on experiences, find a store near you, and get the gear you want to get outside at REI.com. So Rhonda, the audience now is really interested in adventure and performance. And, and I'd love to ask you, since you've studied this so much, you're such an expert on it, what are the best health hacks for overall training and performance? It's something that I've sort of, um, over the past couple of years, been interested in and um, came across you know, came across it sort of in a in a weird roundabout way, whereas like I was in graduate school and started using um, the sauna because I lived across the street from the YMCA and uh, I was, you know, just started using it in the mornings before I would go into the lab and do work. And what I noticed was that I started to feel really, really good and my anxiety started to go down. You know, grad school can be very stressful. Uh, experiments don't work, just lots of pressure, you know, publications and all that. So I really um, became interested in using the sauna because of the effects it was having on my mood, and uh, which is a completely separate story. Um, 
there are a lot of actual there's a lot of science showing a positive effect on um on on mood because of various reasons um, endorphins is one of them but as i started to dig into the literature i started to find all this evidence on other things that were rela- related to training so i was like oh well that's interesting because you know i've always been so, sort of a runner um, and that's, you know, an endurance type of training. And there were multiple, multiple studies showing that people that were uh, using the sauna, endurance athletes that used the sauna, you know, two to three times a week um, had in, in performance enhancements um, in whether it was running or cycling. And so I started to sort of dig into that and figure out why. And um, lots of reasons for that. One is, I mean, if you think about like heat acclimation, a lot of athletes will like train in the heat. Um, and, and one of the reasons for that is because when you do expose your body to heat, which is very similar to when you're exercising cardiovascular exercise, uh, you, you elevate your core body temperature. One of the things that happens is that you, um, have increased blood flow to the heart, uh, and that allows your heart to basically do less work for every, you know, beat it's doing. So you sort of like are pumping out blood easier and you know basically giving all sorts of goodies to your muscle fatty acids glucose things like that um so that that's one reason and the other reason is that you actually start to um cool down at a lower core body temperature so you sweat earlier uh which helps you stay cooler so you can sort of go longer so those are two sort of acclimations that occur um when you continually expose your body to heat so the sauna um, is one of those ways to do that and there are interestingly um, a lot of other health benefits so um, I recently uh, was in Finland about a year ago and in Finland like everyone has a sauna almost I mean it's so ubiquitous cool very very like in their house like just just very ubiquitous Um, and so one of the world's leading experts on using the sauna researchers is there and he happens to be um, someone who is a uh, cardiologist but he also has a PhD so he's a scientist as well and he's doing all sorts of research on the sauna and he's found that um, people that use the sauna three you know three to four times a week or four to seven times a week uh, have like anywhere between a 50 24% to a 50% lower cardiovascular disease risk, depending on how frequent they use it. Alzheimer's disease, they have like a 60% lower risk. So there's lots of of broad health benefits for using the sauna in addition to this particular uh, endurance performance enhancement um, is just health benefits in general. Uh, So that's like, well, you know. Sauna is great. So how many days a week do you use the sauna? Well, since I recently uh, had a baby about three and a half months ago, I've stopped using the sauna basically when I found out I was pregnant. But before that, um, I think that if for someone, if you're looking at the literature and you're looking for the en- endurance enhancements, three times a week, about 20 to 30 minutes, anywhere between a temperature between 170 to 190 Fahrenheit. So hot. Wow. And so do you want to go into a cold shower after or do you want to stay heated? Good question. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of people in Finland actually do the cold shower. They jump into like the cold Baltic, you know, or do a cold sh- shower afterwards. It's very, very common there in Finland. I've done it, you know, and it, you feel great. Yeah. Um, so it, I think it really depends on, you know, the person. And I've done it where I can go from hot sauna into the cold shower or an ice bath and back into the hot sauna again. Um, and it sort of helps you get you know, back into the heat again because you've cooled yourself down. Uh, there are there. There's not a lot of literature on the benefits of going from hot to cold. The contrast therapy, yeah. it's called. Uh, but I do know that it from firsthand experience, it, I feel really good. Like my mood, I sleep better. So there's a lot of really great benefits in that respect. Um, however, there is one caution I would say that people that have like a pre-existing heart condition or some sort of um, you know, heart condition in general might want to be cautious by going from heat, hot to cold, mm. uh, just because it is, you know, your the heat causes vasodilation, your blood vessels are dilated, you have increased blood flow. The opposite happens with cold, you constrict your blood vessels and you, so, you know, that's something to keep in mind if you have a heart condition, but. No, that's good to know. We like to go surfing in winter, which is pretty cold right now. It's 60 degrees. It's not that cold, but 60 is cold enough for me. No wetsuit. And then across the street, there's a sauna. We jump in. Nice. And, you know, we try to shower, but yeah. <laughs> sometimes we go in salty. It's great. Well, a lot of a lot of gyms have have 
saunas. Um, a lot of people nowadays are, are getting their own saunas. I would say that the, the saunas I'm referring to are the traditional hot ones, not the infrared ones, which don't – I think the highest temperature an infrared sauna gets to is like 140 Fahrenheit. Wow. So you'd have to stay in a lot longer. Uh, but there are there is literature showing that other other modalities of heat exposure, like a hot bath, jacuzzi, steam shower, even hot yoga, they all have very similar benefits. The idea is to just heat stress your body. And by heat stressing your body, actually you're mimicking a lot of the effects of cardiovascular exercise. Your heart rate goes up to 150 beats per minute. So you can you can mimic like moderate aerobic exercise in a way. A lot of the mechanisms that are happening when you are doing aerobic exercise are as a consequence of elevated core body temperature. So there's sort of like this tricking your body kind of thing where your body sort of thinks it's exercising, but it's not, if that makes any sense. So yeah, I, like, I call it like the lazy lazy man's workout where I just <laughs> go take a sauna and I'm like, oh, I yeah. worked out. Well, it's really cool because the, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people that are injured or, you know, just there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons when you're older, um, you know, using the sauna or any other sort of modality of heat exposure can be beneficial also because uh, there's a lot of endocrine changes that happen when you're when you expose your body to heat, like the sauna. One of them happens to be a robust increase in growth hormone, which helps your muscles uh, basically prevent your muscles from atrophying, which is you know something that gets very important as you get older, also when you're injured, uh, as well as it increases something called heat shock proteins, as their name implies. They're you increase them when you know there's elevated uh, heat or temperature, and they also protect protect your muscles from atrophying. So, great great uh, little health hack for for uh, staving off muscle atrophy as well. Generally speaking, I think that's something good as you especially as you get older. That's awesome. Um, what about any other health hacks that you can think of? Yeah, so there's a couple of other ones. There's one that's really interesting that I recently came across and I because I've become really interested in circadian rhythm which is basically you know our our body's day night or uh, light night sort of dark cycles so you know humans are diurnal creatures we're up in the morning we're active our metabolism's running and as the day goes progresses we become um, you know less active and we sleep when it's dark right so there's this it's called circadian rhythm. Well, there's lots of things that are on a circadian rhythm, not just our sleep schedule, but our, our metabolism, like we're most insulin sensitive in the morning and then least in the evening. Turns out peak performance is also on a circadian rhythm. And what's really interesting is it's not like there's a standard time of day when your performance is at, you perform your best athletically. It all depends on when you wake up. So there's been studies looking at people that are what are called early risers or intermediate risers or late risers. So the early and intermediate risers are anywhere between 7 and 8 a.m. And the late risers are 9.45, 10 a.m., you know, onward. And um, what studies have found is that the, the, the early and intermediate risers, their peak performance occurs anywhere between five to six hours after their waking time. So typically it's it's around early afternoon, whereas the, and this is very interesting, the late risers, their peak performance is 11 hours later. So it's a huge difference between the early and intermediate between those risers and the late risers. Their peak performance is like in the evening. It's really kind of an interesting, and we're talking like a one to 2% um, difference in performance, which can be crucial if you're doing a race or if you're in the Olympics or something like that. So it's kind of an interesting and new growing field where, uh, you know, athletes may start to consider when their race time is, when they're competing and sort of training their body to wake up, you know, at a certain time. Because there's also a lot of factors that uh, play a role in when you wake up. You know, obviously your your work schedule, your lifestyle, all those things play a role, but there's genetics as well, you know. So, you know, training yourself you may not just – I wouldn't say like, okay, you have a race that's in the morning, so you're going to wake up at 3 a.m. You want to train yourself to do that like more than just once, right? Because it's not yeah. like just a one-time thing. Uh, so very interesting, interesting right? Yeah. yeah. And that's – like I said, it's a really new and growing feel, but it's something that I'm – because I personally like working out in the morning. Me too. I, I feel like – yeah, I get up. 6 a.m. I'm out. Great. I'm, well, now <laughs> that I'm a new mommy, I'm 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 – feeding my son at 6 a.m. But after after that, I, I take a, um, a high-intensity interval training cycling class, and I take that at, at 9 in the morning. So 
So I'm waking up around five and doing my, my cycling class around nine. So I'm close to my peak performance. Not, you know, it's great. I, I want to talk about the high intensity training. Was there, was there any other health hacks you wanted to talk about real quick? One more. Yeah. So the other one would be, um, basically time restricted eating which is kind of similar to to it, there's a there's a fasting component to it uh, and it's also it has to do with the whole circadian rhythm which we were just talking about where um, basically you eat all of your meals within a very des- short designated time period anywhere between 8 to 12 hours well there's studies showing that um, at least in animals if the animals consume all of their food in nine hours and they're fasting for 15 hours, they have a really uh, significant endurance enhancement. Um, again, endurance, endurance, not not like strength training or things like that. Um, and um, we know now from from human studies that it might have to do with the the fact that your body goes into ketosis and you're producing something called ketone bodies. And one of the major circling ketone bodies is beta hydroxybutyrate. So we know now from um, from human studies that have been done both with fasting and also giving a human an exogenous beta-hydroxybutyrate, like ketone ester, uh, as a drink, um, that has been shown to, to confer endurance um, performance enhancements, specifically endurance. Now, we're going to talk about high-intensity interval training. That's the kind of thing that actually it would not benefit. In fact, it may even dampen the performance huh. on that and and that's because uh, we can talk a little bit about this but the difference between when you're when you're an endurance athlete your aerobic exercise aerobic means you're using oxygen right um, and you're also using either fatty acids or glucose that's you know that you get from your diet um, to make energy and that requires something called mitochondria without getting too technical this isn't a biochemistry class uh, however when you're doing something like anaerobic or high intensity when you're given that real push like a sprint um, you are you're going beyond the capacity of your body to take the oxygen in and use that energy that way and so what you end up doing just using glucose only um, without your mitochondria and so uh, the ketone bodies can't be used that way. They can only be used by mitochondria. So they wouldn't um, help with the, the the sprinting or the high-intensity sort of pushes, uh, that tor- sort of exercise. So if you're an endurance athlete, you kind of want to – if you're starting to eat at 8, you're done at 5 or Yeah, earlier. I mean, it, it, exactly. So, you know, depending on the person, you you basically uh, deplete your, your liver glycogen stores. You know, you can – anywhere between, you know, 7 to 30 hours depending on who you are, how much you eat, how much you exercise. Once you deplete your liver like glycogen, you start to re- – to basically take your adipose tissue, fatty acids get released, go to your liver, and you start to make um, ketone bodies that way. But, um, you know, so depending on how active you are, it can be earlier. Like you could do it within seven, six or seven hours if you're a really active person and you're not – and you don't, you don't eat. So um, typically I, I'd say that for me at least, I've noticed like when I eat within – just within nine hours, I absolutely have endurance uh, enhancements on my long runs. For sure. Like I can usually, you know, there's a certain point that I, I'm, I stop running, you know, like it's like, okay, I've reached the four mile point and I'm like, I'm spent, you know, and I'll just keep going. Like where I, I reach that point, I'm like, whoa, I feel like I'm back at two miles here. Like, you know, so very clear. And this is multiple times that I've done this. Um, also, there's a new, and this is like, I have no affiliation with this company, but I did get to beta test the product, which was the ketone ester, beta hydroxybutyrate ester. The company is called um, Human, but it's spelled like H-V-M-N. And um, they've already like, you know, gone public with this this ketone ester, which, is, which will be available in February. You can pre-order it now. I've tried it. Um, I went from, I measured my blood ketone levels. I went from 0.1 millimolar to 4.5 millimolar in 60 minutes, which is deep ketosis, which is the kind of thing you would yeah. get after three days fasting. I went in like 60 minutes, uh, had a ton of energy and um, I went for a cycle and it was like, it was pretty obvious that I that could, you know, my cycling was, I could just keep going, going. Um, like I said, though, if you were, if I was doing like a major sprint or something, that would be a little different, like yeah. the high intensity. So, um, so, so yeah, that's another, the ketone esters are really interesting. Uh, and, and there are studies showing that they they help endurance, but they do not help. In fact, it may even hinder the high intensity like sprinting kind of uh, push. So let's talk a little bit about fasting because I just did a five day water only fast. 
tried to run right after I started eating, did not work. Um, I was still in ketosis, I think, like deep ketosis. My tongue was still white. Took me like a day and a half to, of eating, but then I went out and ran a 5K faster than I'd run a 5K in a really long time. Actually, a couple days after eating, I just felt so fast. One, I was lighter, but two, I just had so much endurance. In fact, I woke up at one in the morning. I couldn't sleep, and, and I'm the kind of person that just sleeps for eight hours. I'm really lucky but I couldn't go back to sleep. So I waited till 4.30 a.m. and I ran <laughs> really, really far. Um, so w- the difference between long-term water-only fasting versus this time-restricted eating and then intermittent fasting, there's so much out there. Yeah, that's first of all really super cool um, that you experienced that. And I can I can tell you almost with certainty, if I were to make an educated guess, I th- I'd say it was because you probably had elevated ketone bodies in your in your system. Cool. You should get this um, little kit. You can It's called Precision Extra. Okay. And it's like $99 on Amazon. And they have come little strips, uh, like that it measures, you can measure your blood glucose levels and your ketone levels. And, um, and it's a little finger prick of blood and do it. And it's super like, you can quantify things. And so now next time you do your fast, you'll know. Anyways, um, the great question about difference between like intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, prolonged fasting. Um, Typically, uh, the the, the time-restricted eating has an intermittent fasting uh, component to it because you are eating within a certain time period. You're also fasting for a certain time period. And intermittent fasting can be anywhere between, you know, know, 10, 12 hours to, you know, 24 hours, Um, maybe even 48 hours that's sort of pushing the limits there. So the time-restricted eating has that intermittent fasting component to it, particularly if you're eating all your food within 9 to 10 hours. So then you're fasting, you know, 14 or 15 hours. So that's that's an intermittent fast. Okay. The time-restricted eating part additionally has you're eating the food within when your metabolism is the most active. So eating it, you know, instead of waiting until and, and, and dispersing all your food within like 15 hours, which, by the way, most Americans actually do, even they don't think they do. Studies have shown they they eat you know within a fifteen hour period. Um, when, well, I do. I eat almost up until bed. If yeah, I, if and I it's run, very common actually. Yeah. When and that's when your metabolism is like yeah. crap. It's like when you don't want to. How eat. do you not eat cookies or like sweets after dinner? You know, you get used to it once you. First of all, you should not eat cookies or sweets at all. Like that's <laughs> that's the thing. These are like <laughs> vegan banana whole whole like. Yes. Okay. But sometimes I cheat and they'll be sweetened with stevia. But sometimes I'll have like even a banana or some fruit at night after dinner. Right. I mean, which is better than eating like refined sugar. Yeah. There's no refined sugar. It's all like whole foods or sweetened or whatever. uh Yeah. You know, so, but you do your body, your body gets used to it. And with the time restricted eating, like I would say after two to three weeks, it's like, you don't even think about it. It's cool. it's just completely like like I stopped doing it. I mean, I was doing it. I was doing it. I was trying my hardest to eat at least within a twelve hour window while I was pregnant. It's really hard uh, when wow. you're pregnant. But I I pretty much for the most part did that before I got pregnant. I was like I was doing nine to ten hours. And now that I'm breastfeeding, uh, I'm I'm still within the twelve hours most of the time. I'm like ten to eleven. Um, cool. Like I'm up all night feeding, but I don't eat. So so anyways, you know I I think that. Um, it really becomes easier as you do it more. So if you just get past that like two to three week mark, it, it's like things start to readjust and, you know, your brain also dopamine stuff, all that, you know, those dopamine hits you're getting from the fruit and the sugar, it, it sort of normalizes. I'd have to do like <laughs> yoga and handstands or something at night yeah. after dinner. You know, it, it's uh, go to the sauna, I don't know, something, but um, it really does get easier. Okay. Uh, and the prolonged fast is like, what you're saying that you had recently done like a five-day water fast, which is really extreme, um, anywhere between four to five days in humans is like a, pro- a prolonged fast. And there's lots and lots of benefits with that, you know, that completely um, different from intermittent fasting. Like there's a lot of overlap between a prolonged fast and intermittent fast, but the prolonged fast has a- additional benefits as well. So um, that's something that um, – um, People can do, you know, once a quarter, depending on the person. And like for me, since I do time-restricted eating, people that are sort of doing this daily intermittent fasting probably don't have to think about doing a prolonged fast quite as often. But there are a lot of really cool benefits that have to do with aging when it comes to a prolonged fast and like making more stem cells and clearing out damaged cells that you can't get, 
you can't get to the same degree with an intermittent fast. Like a prolonged fast is you got to you got to push over that threshold. On one of your podcasts, uh, who was it? Was it Dr. Panda? He said it was like it was like you know a prolonged flat fast. Like you you vacuum your carpet every day, and that's like time restricted eating, but. Once a quarter a year, you gotta get the really heavy steam cleaner. Exactly. Like, that yeah was that was Doctor Sachin Panda. I like that. Yeah, it's a great analogy. analogy. Thanks for remembering that. Yeah, I totally forgot. I like it's your perfect. podcast. We're it's, gonna talk about your podcast. So before we get into that, let's real quick talk about because I want to talk about how you got the wild idea to do what you do because it's so cool. But really quickly, aerobic endurance training versus strength training versus high intensity interval training. Yeah, so we're hot topics. right. We were kind of pushed. We were kind of um, alluding to that, you know, a minute ago, talking about the endurance versus the high intensity. You know, there's personally, I like to try to get all all three types of exercise in my in my uh, exercise routine because they all have there's overlapping benefits, but they also have unique benefits. So, for example, the endurance exercise, um, running, cycling, you know, things that are aerobic. Um, really has a lot of strong benefits for the brain like super super beneficial for the brain and this has been this has been studied for for decades now and multiple multiple studies have shown this in animals and in humans that aerobic exercise increases uh, what are called neurotrophic factors in the brain um, up to twofold like 30 minutes of exercise can can increase at two to threefold in in um, in people so 30 minute hike 30-minute hike. Uh, the more intense the training, the better. Okay. So I would say like a jog would be better than a hike, for example. But yes. Trail run. Trail run, exactly. Um, and what these neurotrophic factors do is they actually cause your brain to make new neurons in parts in the brain that are involved in learning and memory called the hippocampus. They also allow existing neurons to um, repair themselves if they're damaged and to survive right. longer. You know, so brain atrophy is something that we all sort of face and probably – um, we're all terrified of, particularly when it comes to things like dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So, so this type of aerobic exercise has been shown to stave that off, and uh, largely because it has a dramatic impact on growing more neurons in your brain and repairing damaged ones, you know, and um, and that has to do with the the brain derived neurotrophic factor and and other things that are made like serotonin in the brain when you're doing aerobic exercise. So, personally, I love doing aerobic exercise for my brain. The high intensity interval training, I just really recently started getting into, and I love it. Like I super love it. It's amazing. I've been doing like a spin class, but it's a high intensity interval spin class. So we, it's got the aerobic component to it and the the high intensity pushes. So you know we'll we'll do you know either anywhere from twenty seconds to a, to a three minute push, and then we'll have like you know aerobic time where we're recovering and we'll do that like you know a few times and it's just it's so amazing I feel so great after the class so it really instigated me to start to look into some of the, the health benefits you know when you're doing something yeah. you want to know more about it you're motivated well, to you learn. especially especially me yeah um so I started reading up on it and um high intensity interval training has been shown to um well there are effects on the brain it, it you actually increase the production of several different neurotransmitters that are uh, involved in learning and memory. So so it actually helps if you're like going to do it, you have a test or something. And this has been shown in, in human studies to like read what you're going to do and then do the exercise and then take the test. So you like help, you, yeah. you basically helps helps you remember and like the, the recall, both short-term and long-term recall, um, which is very interesting. But the other thing that's interesting and um, uh, what I'm super, super interested in because it has to do with aging and I'm obsessed with it, longevity and aging, um, is that it causes you to make new mitochondria and, wow. and, and replace like old damaged mitochondria. And mitochondria, those little powerhouses we were talking about earlier in the podcast that have to do with making energy, well, they basically are important for like every single function, like pretty much almost. So um, if you can make new young mitochondria, like do it. It's the it's it's good. So high intensity interval training has been shown to do that up to like like in young people it's been shown like thirty percent growth in older people like up to sixty percent growth like after a high intensity interval training. Wow, that's amazing. Right. So is super it, super cool. Is there a point where you know I'm I'm really interested in like getting into ultra marathons. Is there a point though where it's like too much and you start damaging your cells or? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely something, a, a component to overtraining. Ron is cringing. Like, you know, okay, yeah, I mean, 
I think that if it comes down to like an ultra marathoner versus like a sedentary obese American on the standard American diet, I would say ultra marathoner is like way more healthy, right? Yeah. So I don't want to compare it to like yeah. that. But um, there, there is evidence that like, you know, overtraining can, can, can cause too much inflammation and you can't recover from that inflammation. So you mm. start to break down uh, muscle tissue. You start to break down, you know. I think other- I'm just going to do one. that would be cool i mean to say you did it and try it and uh but yeah i mean maybe just not every year or something like that you know (laughs) what about where does like surfing fall into this i mean surfing is largely i mean i think it's it's got both i think it's got the aerobic and the high intensity part because there are there are points where you are paddling your ass off right i mean like you got a set coming and you're like oh i I gotta get out you know so i would say that it and seems scared. to me, and you're totally scared, right? Oh yeah, totally terrified. I would say that there's, there's definitely, I think there's a, a component of aerobic and uh, anaerobic both, you know, because there, I definitely have, I know many different times have paddled so fast, and I'm just like, there's no, I am absolutely anaerobic right now because I'm like paddling for my life, you know. So. I would love to know like what goes on in your head when you're paddling to catch a wave, like scientifically, you're like, I'm anaerobic, I'm anaerobic. Okay, no, I'm in my aerobic <laughs> phase. Like I'm. Actually, surfing no, surfing is one of those things where uh, I, I shut down that part of my brain and I'm like in most for the most part, I'm like in the moment as long as the surf's not super big and I'm not like really terrified. Uh, at least, you know, I think now because I haven't been surfing quite as often as I used to, um, you know, even 10 years ago, I'm a little more scared just in general because, you know, it takes a while. It takes yeah. a while. But but just Speaking from experience, I mean, surfing to me for a long, long time was like, leave it on the shore. And I just loved being out there and and hanging out with my fellow surfer friends and just like being on the ocean. And it just, it was amazing. I wonder if you, have you ever done it? Have you looked into all the research coming out about just being in nature and what does that does for the brain? I've read a little bit, like not a super, like I'm not an expert on that, but it, there there are studies, for example, comparing um, people that have gone for a run uh, in the city versus a run in like nature and, and looking, um, there was various parameters that were measured like uh, in terms of uh, psychological function and behavior and mood and the nature runs by far were like there was they they scored better on like all these different parameters of like mood uh, anxiety so they had less anxiety even though they're both exercising doing the yeah. same thing you know um, the same amount of time and all that so yeah I mean there's definitely something to being out in nature that is sort of I don't know I, it's it's like fundamental like there's something going on there I'm gonna send you this book called The Nature Fix it's it, she studies a lot about the science of nature. Oh, cool. It's been really cool. Um, so let's talk about you. Like lately you're on Joe Rogan's podcast, Tim Ferriss's podcast. You're talking to Nobel laureates, Salk research scientists. You know, how did you get the wild idea to do what you do, which is to essentially explain really important things like health, aging, nutrition, but to the masses. I mean, and you study really deep scientific things and you're able to explain them to everyday people like how did you get the wild idea to do what you do well first of all thank you for saying that i'm able to explain it to everyday people because i don't oftentimes i I wonder you didn't even use the word cell apoptosis apoptosis (laughs) i really want you to talk about apoptosis just once because it's like my favorite word Um, at dinner parties to act smart oh that's so it's funny story um i I should totally answer your question but um, when i first met my husband um at the time i had just started graduate school and i it was like a Friday night. I was in the lab. It was like 9, 30, 10 o'clock. And my friend was like, we're going to this bar. This is ridiculous. We're going to, you know, we're, you know, we're going to go have a beer. I didn't want to, but she convinced me. So we like go to this local bar where all like the cool kids go, you know, in, uh, in Tennessee, Memphis, Tennessee. I went there and my, my husband at the time, was not my husband, came up to our table and just started randomly like asking me questions. He's like, what do you think about this ring? Does it make me look like I'm married? It's on the other hand. And and I was just like, what is this going on? So anyways, a conversation started and and I told him I was a scientist and he asked me what I studied. And at the time, I studied apoptosis, but I was trying to dumb it down for him because I was like, there's no way this guy knows what apoptosis is. So I was like, well, I study how cells die or how they don't die. And he goes, you mean, you mean apoptosis? 
And that was it. I was like, oh, blue eyes plus he's smart. And uh, so apoptosis has a, a, a really um, special place in my heart. So for me, finding Johnny <laughs> was just he could catch a wave really well. And then then he, he talked about nutrition and health. But for you, it was apoptosis. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> well, anyways, to get back to your question about like how I started, started on this journey um, where I, you know, have have a platform where I, I basically, you know, explain the science behind health and nutrition and aging and performance to people. It started actually in graduate school when um, uh, I I found myself constantly uh, talking to people, friends, family. I call it talking. I think they perceived it as lecturing <laughs> <laughs> where it was like, you know, I because I care about them and, yeah. and they're just doing these terrible things and I was trying to explain. I'm like, but you need to like eat this way and you need to make sure you're getting enough vitamin D and, you know, and so fish oil and just all this. And it, it got to the point where people, I think they were kind of fed up and they felt like I was lecturing them and like I was, you know, so so they it, they kind of pushed back. And um, at that point, uh, I realized I was like, well, this is something that I'm very passionate about, um, both on a personal level because I'm interested, I'm interested in my own well-being and, and trying to improve my own uh, performance and also improve uh, the way I age. Uh, I also like the people like I, that I care about. I want them to also like be healthy. Like I don't want my mom to get Alzheimer's. I don't want my friends, you know, to come down with cancer earlier than they need to, you know. So like, I started a blog. And at the time, uh, I was doing writing articles, and that sort of uh, led me into doing some videos. And as I graduated from from grad school, I had gotten my PhD. I was interviewing for a postdoctoral um, a postdoctoral research uh, lab to to do research in, which is kind of like you you know your continued training after you graduate, sort of equivalent to what like a residency would be for an, an MD. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I had done some interviewing and and. One of the top labs I went to, um, the the professor there had Googled my name and saw that I was doing – I had a web presence. And he was kind of not happy about that because he didn't want my time to be – he wanted all of my time. And he didn't want me to do this other thing that I was passionate about and not kind of upset me. So um, I – even though everyone was pressuring me to go to that lab because it was like really, really, really uh, famous and I, it would have been like – a career path in 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 for a scientist, um, like the academic yeah. way to go is to basically land a tenure track position in uh, a university um, where you basically have a lab and you teach and and that's kind of like the greatest thing and and it's really competitive and hard to do. Um, so 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 to, to do that, you go into the greatest po- you do the greatest postdoc you can and that like sort of helps you yep. get there, right? Uh, well, I ended up doing a really great postdoc with with someone else who loved what I was doing and was like, "This is great. You're you're um, you're getting important information out there." So I continued doing that throughout my postdoc, and um, then I was, you know, through the help of just getting on getting some exposure through people like you mentioned, um, which really helped helped me get exposure. It sort of took off, and uh, at that point, um, I had a a crossroads where um, I was actually offered a tenure track faculty position at a pretty good university uh, at a place that I'd probably like to live. Uh, And, you know, um, they wanted me to teach 50% of the time. And so, you know, I was like, well, geez, I wouldn't have any time to do found my fitness, my podcast, make videos, you know, do everything that I'm doing now. And it was like, kind of like, what do I do? And um, while I sort of took a step back and 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 looked at uh, some of the metrics of like putting out a YouTube video or a podcast where you know it can get anywhere between twenty thousand to three hundred thousand views and anywhere between ten to twelve percent watch the whole like even hour long video all the way through. Wow. It's like that's a pretty large classroom, you know, yeah. as opposed to like one hundred fifty five to one hundred undergrads. I feel like I'm, my reach is much more uh, profound doing doing what I'm doing with Family Fitness. So I kind of. Uh, took the risk and um, decided to keep doing doing what I'm doing, and I've never regretted it not once. I love what I do. Uh, it is still a risk. I mean, it, I think every day it's it, it's not. I mean, it's always easier when you 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 secure um, a position where you know there's there's other people that are you know more stable and and providing funds for you and allowing you to do what you're doing. Whereas when you're doing something all on your own. Uh, it's a lot of pressure because yeah. you're the one, right? As you know, so I've gotten more gray hairs this year than any year. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's it's but it but it's also so rewarding. Agree. You know, I mean, I love I love um education. I love I love first of all, I love researching all the stuff I research because it's like it's my passion. Yeah. And then on top of that, I love sharing what I find with other people who don't have the skill set to to research what I'm researching but but are interested in it. People like your your fiance, Johnny. Yeah. Right? You know, so you know, there's 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 that aspect as well. So um, plus, my husband is also really into it, and he works with me. And it's like we work really well together. So we're a great team. And so it's just like so cool. I feel like it's just win-win. Um, and I, I feel so very fortunate to to be able to do it. Well, it's great. We we love it. We're so lucky. Uh, you guys can check out her podcast, Found My Fitness. I'll have links in the show notes. You know, I've been with you in public when you've been recognized. It's it's pretty funny because you have a podcast, but you your podcast is getting. I mean, you really help people because it talks about you know, you talk about an important that, that saves people's lives. Like I talk about adventure, but an adventure can save people's lives, but this really saves people's lives. Um, any funny stories about like getting recognized or funny questions people ask you? Funny questions for sure. Uh, with this time restricted eating, um, where you eat within like nine or 10 hours, I probably, in fact, I just got this question like last night, no, the night before last, I've gotten it at least 20 times. Like, brushing my teeth. Can I brush my teeth outside of my eating window? And I, I just think that's really funny that people are so gung-ho about it that they're like, the little bit of toothpaste I may swallow, is that going to affect my fast? You yeah. know, and that's, so that's, and another one would be smoking. People ask about that as well. But the toothpaste, I just, I think it's really funny that a large percentage of people are really trying to follow this time-restricted eating oh, and they want to make sure that funny. toothpaste isn't, you know, so I basically say, are you eating the tube of toothpaste? No, okay. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm sure people ask about smoking, alcohol, coffee. coffee. Yeah. Coffee is another one. Yeah, coffee's another one. That's not that's a lot more understandable. The toothpaste one is is what I would say is really funny. <laughs> so there's so much information right now about health and nutrition and performance. How do we decipher like what we should listen to or not? Because it can be pretty confusing. Yeah, it definitely is confusing. And um, you know, I, I can't I, I don't really have a good answer f how you can decipher it. that's what I'm I'm trying to do that I'm sure there's other people out there uh, trying to do the same you know so you know find a reliable source um, you know if you if you can always try to look for references and make sure the references are scientific studies and not blogs you know because that's good, good a blogger is a blogger and and you not not that there aren't really smart bloggers out there but if they're if they're getting all their evidence from other blogs and just, you know, media as opposed to actual science, then it, it may not be right. It may not be accurate. And what about like chasing the scientific study to who's funding it? Yeah. I mean, that's, that can be an issue for sure. I, I would say, um, you know, from experience, for example, like I've, I've done, um, in my postdoc clinical research where we had a study that was funded by the blueberry, a blueberry foundation and it was a blueberry trial involved you know giving people blueberries and it didn't have like all the positive benefits we thought it was going to have and it's not like we fudged the data or anything i mean just we came to the blueberry people like sorry didn't have this thing. <laughs> you know and they weren't really happy about it so you know it's not like if cool. if a foundation like that like for example blueberries or the dairy industry or whatever it's not always the case where if if a study was funded by that industry that it's like it's like a bad study good however yeah. Definitely, it happens. Like yeah. with the sugar industry, for example, you know, there's like a lot of a lot of evidence coming out now that like studies back in you know 50 years ago were um, were not published when it was you know showing that that refined sugar causes heart disease and that was sort of like muted. It was not allowed to be published. And so you know, it, definitely, definitely something that is something to look for. But you know. I think that uh, generally speaking, if there's scientific consensus, like if there's multiple studies showing the same thing, even if one of the studies is found is funded by a you know a, found, a foundation that's involved in whatever the study is, uh, if there's multiple studies showing it, probably likely that there's something real there. It's, good. it's really good to know. Um, so we've come to the quick and dirty round. Okay, cool. So what food would you recommend just to never eat? Refined sugar, like cake, 
cookies. I mean, I would say stay away from it. And what's your favorite food to eat for just nutritional benefits, overall health, longevity? Is it broccoli sprouts? Broccoli sprouts. (laughs) Yeah. Broccoli sprouts are my micronutrient smoothie because micronutrients are essential vitamins, minerals, fatty acids, things like that. Um, So important for so many different things for aging. So I like to like put in some kale, chard, a carrot, you know, a tomato. I like broad spectrum, maybe some blueberries, you know, an apple for um, you know, taste because the kale and all that stuff can be a little bitter and um, blend it up. And, and uh, sometimes I do almond milk or uh, water and uh, drink that. But yeah, broccoli sprouts, if you want to learn, just, just, you know, you can Google Rhonda Patrick broccoli sprouts. I've got like a video, a 45 minute video, just breaking all that down for you. It's, uh, it's pretty awesome. I love it. What's, um, what's a typical morning routine for you? Well, now I've got a, a son, so I think you know my morning routine is um, a little different than it was before before I was a mommy. Um, but typically, I, I I really like to to wake up and uh, get a workout in. Thankfully, um, my my mother comes over and watches watches oh, my boy nice. or, while I I do my my workout, and so I, I like to do that. And then um, you know I I try to get some work done and. Of course, the work is now interspersed between playing with my and trying to like enrich him, uh, my son. But um, yeah, so and then I, I like to to get the smoothie in or broccoli sprouts and uh, coffee's in there as well. So uh, I love it. Um, any other podcasts you listen to? Well, these days, because my time is like incredibly crunched, I haven't been listening to podcasts. But when I was listening to them, I really like um, Radiolab. Like, yeah, like they're really, 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 really good. Yeah. Like that's probably my favorite podcast. I also listen to Tim Ferriss show and and Joe Rogan experience. Um, Books that have have helped influence you that you love or that you gift most often. So unfortunately, and I'm sort of embarrassed to say this, like I hardly ever read books because I'm always reading scientific literature and I'm just, it's like. So what's your favorite scientific magazine? I mean, so a book that I do recommend to people would be The Good Gut by Jess and Erica Sonenberg. And right now I'm reading a book that's going to be released uh, in January by Dr. Walter Longo, who I've interviewed on my podcast before. He's like, he does a lot of the fasting and prolonged fasting. It's called The Longevity Diet. And it's really good. I I, write, like I'm halfway through the book right now, but um I, I really, I really think that's, oh, that's one that I'll recommend. Perfect, because this podcast is coming out in January. Um, any favorite? What's your favorite piece of adventure gear you own? Oh my goodness, adventure gear! I don't need like a surfboard. I what's think. your surfboard? So I have a surfboard that was made forever ago. It's um, it was made. For, I was like, quote unquote, sponsored, you know, <laughs> by a total local like shaper. His name was Don Laughlin. And yeah, I don't even think he's shaping boards anymore, but I love my board. He made it for me. Like we, you know, it's like, it's one of those long boards that um, I can take out on bigger waves uh, just because like the rails are pinched in and it's like, like it's got like a great, board, yeah. yeah. And so I, I've had that board forever and I just love it. So fireware surfboards. Rhonda needs a new board. Um <laughs> Favorite kitchen tool? Oh, my my um, Blendtec blender. No Vitamix, Blendtec. I've got both. Okay. I like. I prefer the Blendtec because, well, at least maybe now there's a newer. I think there may be a newer Vitamix ver- version out that is is um, comparable. But I can like walk away and not have to like stand there and like have my hand on it, which is nice. Oh, that's so awesome. I can multitask. Yeah. <laughs> Advice that you would give to your 15 year old self? I think you went to you went to a good school. I went all girls school. I went to yeah, so I went to um, Our Lady of Peace Academy of Our Lady of Peace in in San Diego. Um, let's see. I think I would probably the advice I would give my fifteen year old self is to tell myself that I I'm I'm capable of achieving whatever I want and and not to let my insecurities hold me back and not to let uh, financial hardships hold me back because. It's amazing what humans can do and what they're capable of if 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 they work hard at something, uh, even if they don't have you know all the advantages that um, other people could have to to get them where they want to go. If they really work hard and and are passionate about something and want to achieve it, it's amazing. You can you can actually do it. So many people don't realize that, and I think it holds them back from taking, for example, the risks that you and I take and 
doing a podcast or doing, you know, going going out and doing and, and doing something um, on your own and and being sort of uh, in charge of of sort of making your own path. And I think that um, my husband really played a role in in, in help helping me believe that because it's not something I've always known for sure. Yeah. Uh, so I think I would definitely uh, make sure that my 15 year old self knew that. That's great advice. Any advice on growing your following? I mean, you've managed to grow your following so big. I mean, how did, I don't even know how Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan found you. Interestingly, I'll, I'll say this, I have been very fortunate and I feel extremely thankful that, um, that I've been able to have that kind of exposure. But, um, I actually just reached out to them on Twitter awesome. and had, you know, I guess interesting material that caught their attention. That's, that's so, I mean, that's great. I, again, I think, um, advice would be, you know, like if you're doing something quality and you, you're actually passionate about it and you, um, you put in, you put in the work, uh, people will notice it. I love that. Any advice to those who want to live more wildly? Advice to those that want to live more wildly? Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure um, how to answer that question. You know, I think that can that can mean a lot of things for different people. You know, for me, it meant leaving the typical academic career path that I was going to do. Like, I feel like what I'm doing is a little more wild it's for my peers. It's super wild for science. I love it. So, um, like, again, I would say, you know, follow your passion. You know, risks are – I think risks are important to take. I mean, obviously, like, you don't want to, like, be be too careless – but you also don't want to like um, hold yourself back. So uh, again, I think it goes to the my my advice to my fifteen year old self is is really just um, following following what in your heart and you know you know that you love and and realizing that uh, y- you just put in the work and and things start to work out. Like sometimes it doesn't happen immediately. Like I mean, I've been at this since graduate school. It took a long time before. I started to have a following, but I just kept doing it. I kept doing it on the side on weekends and evenings, you know, because I had a full-time job being a graduate student and postdoc. I was in the lab, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. A decade you've been working on this. Yeah. And and, and weekends I would go to the coffee shop and work on Found My Fitness instead of going on surf trips and stuff like <laughs> like well i mean i once in a while did but but i just i just kept i kept chipping away so i kept great. chipping away and yeah. you know i think that that that's a great to follow if you've got a wild dream you want to follow and you're scared i think that uh you know if it's something that you love love doing go for it and and work hard and and things will happen oh Rhonda, it's been such a pleasure thank you so much thank you shelby really enjoyed it Thank you so much again to Rhonda for coming down and sharing so much great information. We'll have to go surfing again soon. And if you want, you can check out her recent podcast with Joe Rogan. She talks a lot about being a mom and health hacks to mommy life. So definitely check that out. If you're interested in fasting, we've done a few shows about it. You can also check out one with Dr. Walter Vlongo on a recent Kevin Rose podcast. I hope you enjoyed this show and I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, just go to wildideasworthliving.com. Let me know what you think. And if you want to help this show grow, what really helps is if you write a rating, preferably five star on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you stream podcasts. Thank you again so much for listening to this show. And thank you again to REI for sponsoring it. If you want to get the gear you want to get outside, take classes, or go on adventures, check out REI.com. We have some great shows coming up. We have an ultra runner, a National Geographic photographer, the CEO of one of the best snowboard companies ever, and so many more coming on in a few weeks. And if you're at the Outdoor Retailer Show coming up in Denver, come say hi. I'll be on the show floor all day speaking, podcasting, and generally running around. Wherever you are listening, don't forget, some of the best adventures often happen when you follow your wildest ideas. We'll see you next week.